that means that everybody who's a part of that faculty enterprise needs to feel valued and appreciated for the work that they do. And valued and appreciated is defined differently by different individuals. Well, hello, and welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins, and I'm smiling, and she's smiling back at me to our guest today, Dr. Angela Sharkey. Hi, Angela. Hi, Kimberly. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you today. Again, because Dr. Sharkey is a frequent flyer to the Faculty Factory, check out her first episode, podcast episode number 30, back in August of 2019, where... Dr. Sharkey, as Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Greenville, talked to us about really cool things like the promotion on the faculty clinical track. She talked uh, about peer mentoring programs. She discussed some really important concepts around creativity and intentionality and conscious professionalism, curiosity, women's advancement, roles that have educational value. So there was a lot of really rich content in Dr. Sharkey's episode. However, Dr. Sharkey has taken a new role. Angela, tell everybody what you're doing and where. So I am now the Senior Associate Dean for Undergraduate Medical Education at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, where we have a well-established MD program, and we are now building out a second campus in Charlotte, North Carolina. Whoa. And you just started this this position during this wonderful blooming time of the pandemic in just September, a few months ago, right? Exactly. I've been here five months and one day. Oh my God. And it's been a really fun and interesting transition. Well, I, you know, I think for those of us who love to talk about transitions, can you just kind of do a little brief snippet on the process going from, you know, University of South Carolina to Wake and how, what, how did you get to undergraduate medical education? Yeah. I was always Thank curious you. about the transitions. So I uh, find my calling, my passion in education. And although I'm a practicing pediatric cardiologist, when I started my career way back in St. Louis, and I won't tell you how long ago, I was uh, identified as someone who really enjoyed taking the time to work with the students and the residents in my clinical experiences. So I had the opportunity to be a clerkship director, stayed in that role long enough that the students I had counseled about their career choices were coming back after their residencies and fellowships and seeking guidance on how to be successful as a faculty member. So shifted my focus then into faculty development and faculty affairs. And then, long story short, come to realize that the opportunity to interact with both of those stakeholder groups really lives in the space of academic affairs and undergraduate medical education. So that's where I have landed. And I guess my guidance and uh, to the audience in this regard is remaining open to opportunities, not seeing yourself necessarily in a linear path in what you will choose to do during your career and the opportunities that will be presented to you. This role and leading undergraduate medical education here 
in the Wake Forest School, we have multiple programs within the School of Medicine. So there's a PA program, a CRNA program, a graduate school. And that's why my title is specific to the UME aspects of the School of Medicine. What I saw here as the opportunity was the chance to refine a well-established program while creating and innovating a new school, a new campus for this school. Uh, LCME has some specific guidance, which you need to follow in terms of ensuring comparability. But I had the experience in Greenville of working with a new school and a health system that made a commitment to grow up that school. Similar to here in Charlotte, where Atrium Health has made a commitment to developing a four-year medical campus in Charlotte in partnership with Wake Forest University. That I can't even wrap, begin to wrap my head around. It's one thing to take a new position in a new institution and you're, you're inheriting you know, some solid foundation and there's opportunity for growth, but to build something brand new in a new city a whole new thing that to me sounds so huge. I mean, I, I almost lost my mind re- redoing my kitchen during COVID. So I can't imagine <laughs> that of going, yeah, yeah, sure. We'll do, we'll do we'll that problem. <laughs> yeah. I think that the opportunity to strategize and to create to me were the really exciting pieces of this opportunity. Mm. And, you know, I, I think we'd be remiss not to acknowledge this very unique time in our world and the challenges that has presented and continues to present to all of us. So getting out of the block and tackle that addressing the pandemic has required for our faculty, staff, and students, and getting into this space, again, of using your imagination Mm. to create the possibilities of a future state uh, has been really refreshing. Well, you you did tell us last time in the podcast about being curious and having a vision. And so I, I can now, I can certainly see how your hunger and appetite for challenges and the curious led you there like, oh, let's see what we can get into now. So what kind of trouble I can cause? That's me, Kimberly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the topic today is something that I think a lot of us in academic medicine are struggling with and a lot of faculty are experiencing firsthand. And why don't you kick it off and, and let's get into it. Sure. So um, I I had the experience when I was in Greenville of addressing building a faculty in an environment where the clinical enterprise was the primary driver of the system and the value to the system. And embedding then within that focus, a mission of education and sort of the unique diversity of Um, time and need that adding a school requires within a clinical enterprise. And I think many of us are experiencing this now in our academic medical centers, where we're partnering, our health systems are partnering with other hospitals, with other health systems. And the definition, therefore, the focus of faculty is really shifting. And It's an important time for us as leaders in faculty affairs, professional development, and medical education to really 
think of the paradigm shift that's needed in order for our academic enterprises to continue to be successful in training the future physician workforce and in attracting um, our graduates into academic medicine. We need to make sure that we have a career path as faculty that is interesting to learners who are um, perhaps from a different generation, who have a different focus on prioritization of work, and who may lack some clarity about at least what we currently define as the roles of faculty. Well, this this is so um, timely. And what I really appreciate about this conversation and your expertise is I have zero knowledge of undergraduate medical education. And you know, so many times at Hopkins throughout my brief nine-year tenure here, we get requests, we in the Office of Faculty Development from the Office of Postdoctoral Career Opportunities. Mm-hmm. Can you give this talk? Can we, can our postdocs and fellows take participate in this class? Can we do that workshop? And then down the line, the graduate students, can you come and talk to us about leadership? Can you develop a leadership program for us? And then the residents and fellows, can we do something? You know, they're designated as faculty in some regard, but not really. And and then on down to high school students. And it's a belief, you know, we all love what we do and we get the continuum of building, you know, building our future leaders. And then we're, we're constrained by, I'm a office of faculty development. I'm one person who's 100% effort in the office. That's it. And then we have a little bits and pieces of a couple other people. So then we're, it's the will is there, but the resources are not there. And then you wonder about the mission bleed through that. I don't want to dilute what we do for faculty because we're doing it for everyone else. So I appreciate what's happening in the other categories, but I know nothing about it. So I I would love it if you could educate me about what is happening with you and me and what are you learning? Have you had any ahas with that population compared to shifting from the faculty focus at Greenville? Let me try and highlight probably two or three areas where I think there's real opportunity for us. First and foremost, we as faculty serve as role models for our learners in every space that we exist, whether it's a classroom, a clinical environment, a testing environment, et cetera. We're a role model for those learners. If they see we as faculty are satisfied in our work and find joy in what we do, they're more likely to want to pursue that pathway moving forward. Um, certainly, again, the environment right now creates unique challenges for, for our bedside providers and those who are working in our emergency departments. I cannot imagine and so appreciate their lives right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so appreciate the work that they are doing to help all of us. And uh, they are in those environments still serving as role models. So um, we need to include our learners during those clinical encounters and the unique pressures that individuals feel now to create work value units in order to demonstrate their value to the institution creates enormous pressure in distracting interest from spending time with learners with the perception of that's going to drag me down, slow me down. 
This is where I think Kimberly offices like yours create so much value to the academic enterprise. Because if we can focus in providing short snippets to our faculty to refine their teaching in in a way that allows them to include learners while they continue to deliver clinical care, then we can accomplish both goals without having learners feel like they're a drag on the system. Mm. I think also we shouldn't under address the challenges that our research faculty are facing in achieving grant funding and meeting the metrics they need to meet in order to be considered successful. And again, providing learners in that environment can create a workforce, can allow for some enrichment if you have uh, interest and desire in creating the next generation of researchers, and at the same time, ensuring that our students have some knowledge and skills as they walk into that research environment, whether it's a wet bench environment, translational research environment, clinical trials, et cetera, so that they can actually facilitate the work rather than, again, create drag on the system. So that's where partnership between the UME world offices and faculty development offices is so important. And then finally, I would say the other unique partnership is with our university proper, right? The the expectations of faculty within the academy at the undergraduate and other graduate degree programs is somewhat different than for those of us who are in medical schools, we will be those faculty who are tasked with providing that clinical care often, or who have higher expectations for research grant support um, than perhaps our colleagues are on undergraduate campus, where they're often more focused on curriculum delivery for learners. Partnering with our undergraduate colleagues who may have a little ability to help expand our productivity in ways of scholarship research um, may be really valuable to us. And finally, I would say the same is true for from the perspective of faculty development. So our Center for Teaching and Learning and our Center for Leadership and Character Development are great partners for us at the medical school in amplifying some of the work that we're trying to do with our students and faculty. Thank you. Because, you know, when you started talking and including lunar learners, including learners and recognizing that faculty are role models in, in the clinic and in the hospital space and including learners in the research labs and working with the university, I started panicking. Because I have, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm not doing that. Are we doing that really well? Is there a standardized way of doing it? Is there a best practices model for doing that? And these poor faculty members, now they have to figure this out. And I started kind of going and I got to get busy doing this. What's happening in this? I don't know anything about this. And personally reflecting on the couple of summers where we have had undergraduate students and high school students volunteering and doing a little rotation with us. And it's been an incredible drag on us with, with nothing, nothing but stress. I mean, it was, it, it was not productive. I'm sure I know, obviously, I failed miserably. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. But what you just said reminded me, as usual, 
how ridiculous I go. I go, you know, zero to hundred without realizing you said partnering. Hello, partnering. There are people who, who their careers have been dedicated to figuring this out, how to engage student learners. So thank you for reminding me and, you know, kind of helping me back myself up off this cliff that I don't have to figure this out, that there are people who have figured it out, who can work with us to not only engage with the learners, but it is engaging with the faculty members to make their teaching experience easier and more efficient and more productive and fruitful for both sides. So mm. thank you. Mm. <laughs> I feel better. And can you give us an example, <laughs> maybe in a couple of these in the in the lab or in the clinic or in the um, hospital space, what a good um, program looks like? How do how is it not a drag? You know, how do we avoid being a drag on either mm-hmm. end? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that in terms, let's start with the research program, because many of us have summer research programs at our schools. And um, the, the challenge often is connectedness, understanding who has a project that a student might be willing to and interested in participating in. How might that learner in a very short period of time, just a couple months, actually have any benefit to that research project? And so what we have tried to do is be really intentional about preparing the student before they come in. So anybody who's going to do summer research has to do several modules so that they've done their city training, they've done their um, IRB prep, they understand what a research project, how to develop a question and answer that question. And then... um, their research mentor, we've asked them to provide some seminal uh, information, articles, references that the students should prepare and read before they come in to that research environment in order to be able to help. We also have emphasized to the students that really your goal in this environment is to learn what it is to develop a hypothesis and a process by which to address the question rather than to have a manuscript that comes out of a lab because it doesn't take two months to write a manuscript. It takes a lot more time to develop um, the actual outcomes, the data analysis, and to be able to get to that final product. Now, having said all of that, and this will be true when we talk about the clinical enterprise as well, our learners now have this very unique challenge that step one is pass-fail. How do they distinguish themselves? And so therefore they are seeking more and more opportunities to be engaged in distinguishing themselves through research. So how do we prepare our students for the clinical environment? I think we feel a little more skilled at that in undergraduate medical education, right? We are um, very much focused now on clinical skill development, on note writing and so forth. And again, that each environment, each health system has its own approach to do you let your students put notes into the electronic health record or not. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we'll be able to identify processes that allow student notes to count. And there are some notes that count so that a faculty member can attest the note and not necessarily have to reduplicate effort in documentation that is not value added for anybody in that circumstance. And then um, the other thing we didn't touch on yet is community service. And I think that there is no no better time in our lives to understand health 
inequities and the opportunities we have to impact our communities in important and valuable ways by partnering with community agencies to ensure that we as faculty members, as role models to our students, engaging our students in how they can better the communities in which they live uh, is a really important area of service for us as faculty members to consider as well. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And, and it starts, I imagine, with the institutional culture or the institution's mission, fully embracing that, valuing it, counting it, acknowledging it, yeah. that faculty, first of all, first and foremost, have see that as an opportunity and as uh, a valued endeavor. And then when they are in that space, as you're saying, that's role modeling for students to be engaged in our own neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Gosh, thank thank you for for explaining that. And again, um, maybe just one one more little thing. So then I wanted to go back to this whole paradigm shift that you started off yeah. before I got you into the, the learning thing. Is I appreciate how you talk about the curriculum, how the learners have a set of modules that they they're coming prepared with a certain knowledge base and skill set. Because I'm I'm reflecting on a couple now of, of recent examples where. Um, it's been clear that somebody wanted, a, a learner wanted to get a paper, as you said, like, well, you know, I'm supposed to get a paper out of this, I'm supposed to get a paper out of this. And, and we kind of looked around the table like, well, gosh, if you can, if you can bang out a paper this summer, more power to you. And that's great. But in reality, this is how it goes. And it was, it was, um, it was frustrating because we felt like that learner didn't have a realistic you know, expect. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it makes me also think that I swing into the other side of, of faculty members. And so as, as harsh a reality as that was for this learner, and it ended up being, you know, um, not a good experience for, for her and for the rest of the team. I think the learning opportunity was for on faculty um, and is that whole of being realistic and understanding and, and appreciating the value of investing in faculty, staff, learners up front to really get the end result that you want. So, you know, we're all so fast moving and so busy, busy, busy that when someone says, oh, could you help so-and-so? Could you show so-and-so? Could you explain such and such? And we're like, ah, that's the last thing I want to do is say and explain this for the hundredth time to somebody. So we'll try to, we'll like do a workaround or for think that we can skip over it. And then we suffer the consequences of someone not being given the tools or the resources to do the job. So I just like that you've emphasized to us that that stress on what needs to happen beforehand and not, not saying that they're coming, they're completely competent, but there's right. a baseline and then there's realistic expectations mm-hmm. in a time frame, And then that as faculty members, early career faculty members, we t- teach them the same things to have you're not going to, you've been here six months. You're not going to get three R01s and a hundred papers and be promoted <laughs> and be a leader. And you want to do all these things and be a great educator and build a clinic and generate all, more RVUs than anybody. Come on now, take a breath. You're really going to set yourself up for, for failure. So thanks for that. Well, and I think another thing, Kimberly, is honestly, when we hire a new employee, we typically will sit down and spend the time to articulate what our expectations are for that person, what their role and responsibilities are, and what are the anticipated outcomes that we hope to see in order to demonstrate success. 
perhaps that taking the time for that same conversation with learners that you bring into your clinical environment, that you bring into your research environment, will help have shared values in moving forward in a direction that everybody then benefits from. So when I've had learners work with me over the course of the fall here, the first five months I've been here, I've used them to help me with social media and messaging. It's their skill set. It's not mine. And so recognizing the value that they can bring to help amplify messages, to recruit patients into research projects, to be effective in promoting your residency programs, et cetera. Of course, within the boundaries of your branding guidelines for your institution, et cetera, can be a way to use the skills that they bring as a mechanism to add value to you as a faculty member as well. I don't want to beat this too too long, but now here I go. I'm, I think maybe part of my my trying to hard time swallowing this is that it to me it seems almost more transactional relationship, yeah. transformational mm-hmm. relationship because yeah. it's so short term. And you think mm-hmm. eh, we're going to blink and turn around, click my heels three times, and you're going to be gone. Who cares? You just want to say and put me on your list that you did a rotation in the blah 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 dean's office. You're breezing in here like the wind and. Everybody knows this is just kind of a formality. So I guess that's kind of, and I don't want to get too deeply into it because I really want to hear about this paradigm shift, um, how you're thinking about that. But what are you off the cuff? What are you thinking about? Or how can I better wrestle with the idea of these known short-term relationships? And how can I yeah, how can I get, get myself yeah. over the fact that So what I'm going to suggest for a future podcast session is uh, somebody with content expertise on generational shift, because this generation, there is no doubt about it, approaches work differently, has certain expectations when they walk into an environment, like you suggested, that perhaps it's about me and, and maybe not as much about our partnership. Have somebody come and speak about that, and I'll send you a couple names. Thank you. Ooh, see, look at this teaser. Look at how she rolls. <laughs> I really want um, to hear how your brain works around this paradigm shift with the changing role of faculty. You know, what are you seeing? You know, happening in your experience in your field of vision? We're uh-huh. expanding. Hopkins is expanding our footprint and. We're all wrestling with this. I'm dying to know uh, what's in that brain of yours. Yeah, thanks, Kimberly. The the interesting thing is that I come from a background of working in uh, academic enterprises that have very traditional models for promotion, for tenure, and for appointment, and the definition of faculty. And as I have experienced over the last five years or so working in environments where, again, the medical school grew up out of the healthcare system, and now I have a healthcare system who's really committed to having a four-year campus connected to Atrium Health in Charlotte in partnership with Wake Forest. Wake Forest has its traditional academic enterprise and how faculty are appointed and advanced. And Atrium Health had their own independent way that they identified faculty, primarily in the interface of their GME programs. So we're trying to bring together these two constructs, as happened before with Greenville and Columbia, South Carolina, trying to bring together those um, enterprises and define what it is to be a faculty member. And ultimately, I think if we all 
acknowledge the fact that tenure is a challenging enterprise to sustain financially and that the bulk of our institutions have moved to having a non-tenure track, whatever entitlement goes along with that non-tenure track, as a way of valuing and appreciating faculty who perform roles that are not the same as the roles that were defined at the time that our traditional pathways, promotion, and tenure processes were put into place. It really is all about creating sustainability and recognizing the importance and value of individuals as they facilitate our institutional goals to achieve success in education, research, and clinical care. So that means that everybody who's a part of that faculty enterprise needs to feel valued and appreciated for the work that they do. And valued and appreciated is defined differently by different individuals. And so in our current construct, uh, one of the challenges is that there are faculty who have been a part of the healthcare system enterprise who've been incredibly successful in research and in obtaining grant funding. But in our traditional academic enterprise, because they're not employees of the university, they're not eligible for a title that doesn't carry a clinical modifier. And maybe what I'm going to do here is jump off and say that funding agencies, perhaps the NIH, also would benefit from thinking differently about what title somebody carries and therefore whether they are considered highly for grant funding. And I say that from the perspective that there's fear and perhaps some reality that faculty who carry a clinical modifier consider themselves less competitive Hmm. in the NIH funding world. Wow. So that's mind blowing. And that is, that's one way of forcing a paradigm shift or allowing a shift to happen um, just by merely changing a, a policy, changing so rather than, you know, bottom up change, it's, it's almost like a top down, meaning NIH, which makes some changes that, that will then trickle down, allowing institutions to almost because sometimes our, our promotion policies are, are bounded by all these other historical, traditional, the way we've always done thing mandates. And so we think, well, if this, then that, and then you run on down the chain and all these things will fall apart. Well, if we can poke a hole in that argument by saying, well, actually, that's not applicable anymore. We don't have to worry about that because I love that approach, Angela. That is that to me. So what, let, well, let's troubleshoot that. What, let's poke a hole in that for what, how would that hurt NIH if they were to make that change? How would that hurt them if they were to oh, expand their definition of faculty and, and forget the, the, status and the rank and the titles? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is actually get data. Does it really matter if you have a clinical modifier? Does that impact your ability in your study section to have your grant reviewed in parallel to a colleague who doesn't have a clinical modifier? I don't know that, but but I can understand 
the fear and the perception. So, so let's study it and find out. And then I think the other opportunity that we have just presented is perhaps all of the solution creation is not within our academic enterprise. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it is, Mm -hmm. as has been done before within the group on faculty affairs, a collaborative effort within that group conversation at the higher levels of AAMC in partnership with these other grant funding organizations to say, look, it's not the same anymore. Oh, Angela, this is this is going to be a session at the next GFA, the Group on Faculty Affairs Professional Development Conference in 2023. We got to do it. This is so important. Angela, Sharkey, oh my gosh. You know, I interviewed on, on the pod, Faculty Factory podcast recently, Dr. Maureen Connolly at the new Kaiser Permanente, um, Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine. And she mentioned... I think it's Jessica Kahn's program at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. They do personalized promotion criteria. Mm-hmm. She mentioned, because she was talking about expanding the promotion criteria. So this is kind of, to me, aligns with this, this whole effort to, we just need to start poking holes and asking why. And more importantly, as you said, show me the data. Let's just start cutting across and crosswalking these data and, and prove to us where productivity dips or this title or this, this role, this person, gender, race, age does not do or does do. Let's just look at the data. Let's just kind of rip that curtain back and, and see and actually um, call ourselves and other institutions out on their, their beliefs. And where mm-hmm. these, where these archaic um, ideas come from? Mm-hmm. I think yep. Well, and if they're stated there, then again we begin to be able to have the conversation to create change by being curious. There, here are we going back to my curiosity thing. Let's ask important questions and seek answers and create new novel solutions that may allow us to avoid the great resignation in academic medicine. Right. And as you're saying, in in UME and having new learners see academic medicine as a viable, fulfilling, gratifying career opportunity. Mm -hmm. Gosh, this is this is the time. Right. Because right now I'm afraid that they look at it and go, why in the world would I go into academic medicine? I can make three times the more more money. And do you know that those people in, in these academic medicals, they have no resources they're up against the wall, full <laughs> pressures on them. Forget, forget trying to have a life or a family. They have a hard time parking, let alone getting, you know, help writing grants and papers. And it's it's incredibly stressful. And it's it's a really interesting point because in fact, this year the number of applications to medical school across the country is down about 10%. What? So the interest in careers in medicine has remained very strong, but there has been an impact or a shift in that, perhaps related to the perceived life of right. healthcare workers right now. Right. We we so we could do this the right way: collect data, ask curious questions, challenge uh, traditions, challenge, and I'm not, I love traditions. I love, don't get me wrong. I mean, but challenge the way we do things, ask why and why not. Or I guess we could just go the easy route and just try to get all these 
social media influencers and come up with all these (laughs) (laughs) come up with some new television series and docudramas that make it look fantastic where everybody (laughs) will just rush through our doors and and get medical educations and then we'll just kind of keep it a secret until they get into academic medicine we'll say whoopsie sorry Kimberly I think you have figured out how to use your next medical student who comes to your office (laughs) (laughs) there we go Hollywood, here we come. Get out of the way. Academic medicine is going to take over. Well, Angela, anything else you'd like to share with us? This has been a really interesting uh, conversations. I'm curious to know more, but I don't want to drag this out. Um, Well, I really appreciate your time and, and curiosity. And I think, Kimberly, we do have to really think differently if we're going to be successful in our educational research and clinical care mission. And, and uh, again, I just really appreciate all of those who serve as clinical faculty who are providing care at an, an, a uniquely challenging time. Hope everybody stays safe. Thanks for the time today. You said it, Dr. Angela Sharkey. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Let's all do it, folks. Let's get out there and be curious. Thanks, Angela. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.